You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Kathy Hanauer, author of three novels, My Sister's Bones, Sweet Ruin, and Gone. And Kathy's also the editor of the New York Times bestselling essay collection, Bitch in the House. She's written articles, essays, and reviews for the New York Times, L, O, Self, Glamour, Whole Living, Mademoiselle, and other magazines. And she was the monthly book columnist for both Glamour and Mademoiselle. She's also written the advice column, Relating, in 17 for seven years. She's taught writing at the New School at the University of Arizona, and she lives in Northampton, Massachusetts, with her husband, writer, and New York Times modern love editor, Daniel Jones. And now, it's this, this bio says, and their daughter and son, but we were just chatting about how her daughter is in college and her son is just about to leave. But she's really here, not to talk about that, but to talk about her sort of sequel to the 2002 New York Times best-selling anthology, Bitch in the House. Kathy has edited a new collection called The Bitch is Back, publishing September 27th by William Morrow. And in The Bitch is Back, the contributors, who include New York Times bestselling authors, award-winning journalists, and critically acclaimed novelists, are back with a new collection of 25 essays chronicling their experiences as they are now a little older and somewhat wiser. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you. So I was a huge, huge fan of Bitch in the House, and I am equally um, huge fan of Bitches Back. Let's talk about the word. Let's just talk about it right away. Tell me the difference in publishing a book title with Bitch in the title in 2002 and now in 2016. W- what has the, the response been like in, the, in those two cases? It's funny. Somebody said to me a week or two ago, or, or I heard through the grapevine, that there was an editor that didn't want to review the book because it had bitch in the title, and she thought that was um, like um, a marketing ploy or, or sort of and, and uh, or sort of too trendy or something. It's funny because when we did the first book back in 2002, um, I remember sitting with my editor at that time, was Marjorie Brayman, and we were saying, the, the title came about because of a Virginia Woolf quote. She was actually quoting a, a poet named Coventry Patmore who who wrote about the angel in the house as being somebody who is intensely sympathetic, utterly unselfish. If there was chicken, she took the leg. If there was a draft, she sat in it. And what we were all feeling was the opposite of that. We were, um, we were some, we had many of the contributors and I were in a situation where we had young children and we were working, we had jobs and we felt, um, that our society wasn't supportive enough. Our husbands weren't supportive enough. We were angry all the time and just never, it was never calm. It was always chaotic. And we were the bitch in the house. So it was kind of a play on the Virginia Woolf quote, the angel in the house. And But at the time, there really were not a lot of books with bitch in the title. And um, I remember Marjorie and I were debating at the 11th hour, did we want to change the title? Like, would Borders Bookstore at the time, <laughs> which existed, put it in the window in Iowa or something? Yeah, yeah exactly. Would we it decided to it? go would with, it? yeah, we thought it would limit... Um, Distribution, perhaps. Right. And people would have been offended. And we decided to go with it, which was the right choice. And, and a lot of women <coughs> um, 
end up saying, you know, they would see the title and they'd say, that's me, the bitch in the house. It was just something we all felt angrier than we wanted to be. We felt our lives were great. We had all the things we had wanted, but we weren't feeling good about it. Um, now, um, millions of, not millions, but many, many books have come out, I think, since then with the word bitch in the title, um, including Skinny Bitch and um, The Bitch in the Kitchen. And I know because people send them to me and people send me bitch paraphernalia all the time. Um, but I thought it was funny when this editor said, um, I, I don't want to do a book with bitch in the title because it's like she, she thought it was too trendy because I thought... Sort of too on the nose. Well, <laughs> it's funny because I actually think, do you feel there's a greater sensitivity to a, a woman calling another woman or a woman self-identifying as a bitch now than there was then or not? Um, you know, I feel like self-identifying... Um, People want to take back the word. I mean, certain women, strong women, want to take back the word. I saw something last week in the Atlantic um, or Atlantic.com about Hillary and how this was going to be the era of the bitch. Um, and I think that, you know, we feel like if we want to call ourselves bitches, it can be used in a powerful way. Um, a woman who's not afraid to be tough, a woman who's um, strong-minded or knows what she wants, whereas if somebody else calls you a bitch, particularly a man, but even women calling each other Bitches, it's, it's got a nastier connotation. And um, I carry a keychain that has a quote by Olympia Dukakis, Dukakis, I guess it has presumed to nest it, which is, um, you say I'm a bitch like that's a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> and even with this book, um, I had originally wanted to call it Beyond the Bitch in the House yeah. because it's not really an angry book the way the first one was. It, and yeah, I, it's very different, yeah. And I didn't want to give that connotation of anger. I wanted to be talking about beyond the anger, but um, the people at the publisher really felt that the bitch's back was catchier and, and really said more. And they were right, again. Um, but it's a way of using bitch as a strong word and as something you would want to be as Got opposed it. to yeah. um, an angry, um, pissed off, aggressive woman. So they aren't, the, the contributors are not as angry. They're, they're certainly as complicated. They're, they're complicated and they're facing complicated situations. So how would you describe sort of the tenor of the essays this in this edition, in, in The Bitch's Back? Um, I think this book has a little more breadth than the last one. The last one was many of the contributors were angry or were writing about anger. Uh, this book is, I think, you know, these are women that are 15 years older in general. There are nine of the same contributors from the first book and 16 new voices, but they're, the youngest contributor in this book is 38, and the last book, uh, the youngest one, was, I think, 23. And these are more midlife women, and I, I picked women that had made choices. They'd gotten to a certain point in their life where they could either sort of stick with what they had and kind of atrophy or calcify, or they could, like, really examine their lives and say, what... What do I have that's working? What do I have that's not? What do I still want? Um, you know, is this relationship right? Um, is this job right? Do I need to um, transition from a male to a female? Um, do I need to leave my marriage? You know, what they were really women that dug deep to figure out what they wanted and then went for it. Yeah, it's interesting, though. They all clearly examined their lives. But actually, part of what I liked about it was that many of them said, you know what, I'm going to stay and I'm going to... I, I'm going to benefit from this part. I'm going to try to adjust that part. And I'm, you know, it wasn't every single one of these stories wasn't, oh, and then I stood up and walked out or I made this huge change. It was really a lot of looking at it and then perhaps adjusting the perspective. And, and, and I thought that there were, there were some very subtle things 
that they did and the way that they changed the way that they received their situation, which I thought was really very interesting. That's totally right. Um, I, I think some of them made dramatic changes and some of them made subtle changes. And sometimes it was just about adjusting your expectations. Expectations. You know, it, it, like what, if I did leave, what would my life be? Um, maybe, you know, I would be giving up this, this, and this to get this, this, and this. It's not worth it. Or accepting that marriage isn't supposed to be this, it's not this um, idealized, amazing, you know, incredibly sexy thing that we're all led to believe, um, we're often led to believe it's going to be, or and same with motherhood and same with um, yeah. having a career or making money or so. The tone was, I would say, the tone was of a great deal of acceptance, not not acceptance, you know, Pollyanna-ish kind of acceptance, mm -hmm. but rather saying, oh, I've walked this very, very long road and there were mistakes and bumps and everything else, but I accept that. That's sort of what was given to me and I made the most of it and and I'm not I'm not going to look for something that's perfect was was the message of many of these essays and it, it certainly that was the way that I received it as the target age and in the target situation to receive stories of of women in these you know in these different situations yeah I I think that's right I'm glad to hear you say that um, I do I think I think sometimes midlife is about accepting it you know you have a maturity and a wisdom that you didn't have when you were. 30 or 35 or 25. Um, and also, I think women our age, because uh, I'm in the target age group too, I think your life is calmer and you actually have time to sit down and think. It's really true. That's <laughs> for, like the first time in X number of years where you right. are, you actually can exhale. Yeah. If you're, if you're a working mother, which is what many of the women in the first book were, or even just a mother, um, you... Just, you know, life is crazy in the early years. There's often not enough money. There's no time. There's not time to think about yourself or do the things you love or the things that got you through your 20s, maybe before you had children. Um, and now, I mean, I mean, I have a child who's 21 and one who's 18. And I, I just feel like my life, I love the way my life is now. You know, I can focus on my work. Um, my children are are grown up and they're mature. And they, it's not, it's not that all that chaotic, demanding, physically exhausting thing. And, and it gives you some time to step back and say, you know, who am I? What do I want? Um, is my life the way I want it? If not, how can I change it? And, how can, and so I think that many of the women, you know, nobody has a perfect life, but we've all sort of, these are a bunch of smart, powerful women who really did have choices or really do now. And they're really taking the time to figure out what they want and then to get that. Like, for example, Hope Edelman had a piece in the first book. It was called The Myth of Co-Parenting, I think. And um, she talked about how angry she was at her husband because she had been a, a, a well-selling or best-selling novelist and a hard worker and had made her own money and it had her 20s all like this, you know, really being fulfilled and successful and independent. And then you marry, she married, and she married a guy who was kind of a workaholic. They had two children, and so a lot of the work fell on her, the work of parenting, which meant she had to cut back on her earning and on her career and on her time of thinking and all the things that had given her sort of sustenance earlier. And cut to 15 years later, you know, and she can step back now and say, I realize now that I was making choices all along the way. I made a choice to stay in this marriage. Um, I made a choice, you know, she didn't so much have the choice to co-parent, but she realized that he ended up making a good amount of money, and that's what made them comfortable. And so she could step back a little, and something that might have seemed like a, a bad thing back then became more of a luxury or a, or a benefit. Mm -hmm. um, 
And she talks about, you know, what she's given up in this kind of a marriage, but also what she's gained and why she hasn't left, but also is realistic about what might happen in the future when now that her kids are going to college, or one is, and the next one's almost. And she says, is there enough in our marriage to sustain us? We've led very separate lives, which is not at all something I thought would be the case for me because I'm not that kind of person. That's not the kind of marriage I wanted. And she's learned to be more autonomous and be more self-fulfilled. And that's a good thing that's come of it. But she also says, will there be enough there to uh, keep us together forever? I don't know. Yeah. We'll see in a few years when they're both gone. Right. And there are a number of there are a number of updates like that. And there, I mean, it was 25 original contributors, which I think is fairly rare. It's usually these types of anthologies sort of have previously published essays as, as the majority of the pieces, if not, you know, at least a few of them. So I think it's rather impressive. Thank you. And I would love to hear, I would love to hear the conception of the original and, and now going back. How, how does one, what is your function? What is your role as an editor? Because of course you are an independent and well-published author, but now you're functioning as an editor. So tell us a little bit about what that really, what you really do and, and how, how this all worked. Um, I think I'm a very hands-on editor. I think the first book actually had 26 contributors, and this one has 25, um, but one of them is me because um, I did an as-told-to. Somebody yeah. did a, told me a story, and I wrote it. She wasn't a writer. Um, but I think with the first book, I conceived the book, and I knew what I wanted it to be, but I had also been a magazine editor, so I knew how to assign a piece and how to really edit it okay. hard. Yeah. I went to the contributors. Um, in some cases, I went to them because I knew them and I knew they were good writers and would have something to say that was something I wanted in the book. In other cases, I went to a writer I really admired and asked them if they had something to say. And in a few cases with that book, more cases with the new book, there was a topic I wanted covered and I found a writer who I thought could cover it. Um, but I was very hands-on and some people didn't like that, especially the first time around because, you know, I wasn't well-known then and I um, just... They were like, who is this yeah. This woman, you know, telling me I can't write, I have to cut this part or redo yeah. this part. That worked better the second time because I had a little street cred from the first book. And this is my fifth book, so I had a, a little more, um, you know, people knew who I was at least a little. Um, but with this book, too, and with this book, I think I really knew what topics I wanted. For example, I wanted someone who had been in an arranged marriage. Okay. So I found a writer who could do that through a friend. Um, I wanted somebody to write about a parent who was aging and they didn't want to take care of the parent because of the way the parent had treated them. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a normal childhood and mm -hmm. this person didn't feel she owed her mother anything. And so what do you do about that? How do you deal with the guilt and what really happens when you're the only child? Um, I knew I wanted a piece about breast cancer and I found the amazing and miraculous Lynn Darling, who's such a beautiful writer. She wrote a really I think, incredible piece about breast cancer and sexuality. I knew I wanted pieces about sex and marriage, both marriages where there was not enough sex and where there was the husband wanted more sex and you didn't want it, you know, where mm -hmm. there's a sexual discrepancy mm -hmm. in marriage because most of the marriages I know are that way. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're imbalanced, yeah. <laughs> and yet we get the, you know, we get the feeling that, or we get the message that once you get married, it's, you know, great monogamous sex for the rest of your 70 or 80 years, and it's just not really usually like that. So I have people on both sides of that spectrum um, writing about their sex lives. Um, I had a friend who I knew had really changed her life by quitting a job as a writer and going to work with prisoners, with particularly one prisoner. So I really wanted her story. And she actually had written for the first book. Her name is Cynthia Kling. Mm -hmm. She wrote a beautiful piece at the end of this book about working with prisoners and how that changed her life and how it kind of gave her a new, like a rebirth in midlife. Mm -hmm. 
Pam Houston. Oh, I knew I wanted transgender. Well, not necessarily that I wanted a transgender, but Jenny Boylan, Jennifer Finney Boylan is such an incredible writer. And I knew I wanted her voice in this book and I wanted her to talk about um, the transition she made in midlife and how that worked for her as she ages mm-hmm. as a woman. And um, she wrote it, I think, just really gorgeous piece. Gorgeous, yeah. Um, it really does feel like chatting with your friends or taking that walk that you, you're fortunate enough to take with some of your friends when you really lay out these things, when you really talk about, you know, what it is that you're contemplating and, and the pros and the cons and the, you know, back and the forth. Thanks. It's, it was it was very, very intimate. And yet, laugh out loud funny, of course. Oh, good. Really? Yeah, some of these authors are hilarious. I mean, I mean, some of them are so funny. And also, you know, um, a couple of them address appearance, which is something mid- midlife women struggle. Do I, I mean, Anne Hood writes about not caring about her weight anymore and really letting go of that after being a very skinny model, really a model for many years. Whereas Deborah Spar, who is the president of Columbia, you know, oh, sorry, of Barnard. Of, of Barnard. I mean, president of Barnard writes about how, the things that she does because she wants to look fantastic right. and how she's no longer equally, I can't worry about it. Right. I can't worry about others might think, and these, right. are, these are my feelings, and this is what led me here, and this is my choice. Yes, this is what I choose to do, and some of it is the job she has in feeling exactly. like she needs to look a certain way. And some of it is New York, you know, and living here and feeling she needs to look a certain way. But some of it's just, yeah, letting go of, of um, the, there's an epigraph at the beginning of one of the sections that's, there's nothing better than the freedom to be gained by letting go of your ideals. Just about realizing that life isn't perfect and sometimes like forgiving yourself and just saying, well, okay, for many years I was against social media, but now I'm going to join it. Or, or, or anything like that. Yeah. Or just sort of being a little bit brave and just doing something, you know, just making any choice and saying, I thought about this, I carefully considered it, this is my choice, thank you very much. Yes. I don't, you don't have to agree with me, but I'm not listening if you're going to fuss at me because I just don't care It's my life. It's my life. And also, I like the word considered that you said. I mean, I was looking at a book yesterday about, it was a decorating book and it was about the considered apartment or the considered house. And that's what I think this is about. I mean, it's really a book about, um, about searching, digging deep within yourself and figuring it out, not just floating along being with your unhappiness, which so many people do. Yeah, it's but, really true. You know, even if it's going to make you less happy for a little while, like you got to figure out what you really want. This is the chance. You're in midlife and it's not going to get any better if you don't fix it. Or just learning to accept, well, you know, I have a lot of good things and I'm not going to um, seek perfection and ruin the good things I already have. And I'm going to be happy with that and yeah. or go on a drug to be happier or yeah, do a yoga or whatever, get my own room. So It was lovely. And I thank you very much for coordinating it. And I wish you the best. Thank, thank you. you so much. Yeah, it's fun to talk to the you. The book is The Bitches Back. It's from William Morrow and it publishes on, remind me, what is it? September, September 27th. 27th. And Kathy Hanauer is the editor. And it's available wherever print books, ebooks, and audiobooks are sold. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.